This week's comment, Opening Doors by Jelani Cobb, from The New Yorker magazine, May 30, 2016. The current circumstances in North Carolina, a tableau of states' rights populism, an embattled minority seeking equality, a conflict over who is allowed to use public facilities, and a Southern governor committed to resisting federal executive authority, warrant a reversal of a familiar adage, everything new is old again. In March, Governor Pat McCrory signed a bill known as HB2 that requires people in North Carolina to use the public restroom that corresponds to the sex indicated on their birth certificate. The response was swift. PayPal canceled plans to build an operations center in Charlotte. Twenty conventions pulled out of the state. Bruce Springsteen and Pearl Jam, among others, canceled concerts. The governors of Connecticut, Vermont, and New York issued restrictions on state employees traveling to North Carolina on official business. In 1960, when four students launched a sit-in to protest segregation at Woolworth's lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, the local impact was minimal. It took the ripple of boycotts targeting Woolworth stores across the country to turn the protest into a national matter. The impact of this new law on the tiny slice of the population that it targets has yet to be determined, but it has already been remarkably successful in turning North Carolina into one long Woolworths counter. This element of past as prologue was made explicit earlier this month when Attorney General Loretta Lynch announced that the Justice Department was bringing suit against North Carolina for violating federal civil rights law. Four days later, President Obama issued a directive to public schools to allow students to use the restroom corresponding to their gender identity. It was not so long ago that states, including North Carolina, posted signs on restrooms, water fountains, and other public accommodations as part of a policy to exclude people on the basis of a distinction without a difference. We have progressed beyond those dark days, but not without a constant fight. This time, states should act not out of fear and misunderstanding, but out of the values of inclusion, diversity, and regard for all, which truly make America great. Consider the political implications of an African-American woman, the first to hold the office of Attorney General, informing a white governor that his state's policy toward the transgender population is reminiscent of the days of de facto racial discrimination. North Carolina, with its banking center in Charlotte, its substantial black middle class, and its elite universities, esteems its identity as part of a South too forward-looking to be defined by bygone bigotries. Lynch called that premise into question. She could have taken the point further. North Carolina was more than willing to countenance all gender bathrooms when they served the purposes of racial segregation. Jim Crow legislation culminated in separate bathrooms for white men and white women, but only a single colored restroom for African Americans, whatever their gender. McCrory, who is locked in a close re-election battle and hopes to galvanize social conservatives, responded to Lynch by declaring that both the federal courts and the U.S. Congress must intercede to stop this massive executive branch overreach, which clearly oversteps constitutional authority. 
Last Thursday in the House of Representatives, when a bill prohibiting federal contractors from discriminating against LGBT Americans appeared to have enough votes to pass, Republicans mobilized to defeat it. The same day, 25 Republicans in the Senate sent a letter to Lynch and to the Secretary of Education, John B. King, Jr., opposing the president's directive to public schools. Governor Greg Abbott of Texas tweeted that JFK wanted to send a man to the moon. Obama wants to send a man to the women's restroom. Phil Bryant, the governor of Mississippi, ordered his state schools to ignore the directive. As with the discrimination of the past, the lines between victim and victimizer are deliberately blurred. Jim Crow was anchored in a sense of white victimhood and febrile arguments about the protection of white women from black male rapists. The historian Lisa Lindquist Dorr writes in White Women, Rape, and the Power of Race in Virginia, 1900-1960, By the 20th century, the rape myth was at its height.